Please pray with me. Our Father, we have gathered here this morning because we are desperate to hear you speak. We do not know, we cannot live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask you, speak to us through your word this morning, that we may have life and live in Christ. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Open the eyes of our hearts to behold wondrous things out of your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love and faithfulness that we may rejoice and be glad. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Pastor Kevin called me late last week and asked if I would fill in for him this morning as he needed to go to Colorado to be with Trisha and her family. And so I decided that I wanted to spend some time with you in the book of Ruth. This is a little book that has come to have a big impact on my life as I preached through it when I was in Chicagoland. And so while I wish I could preach through this whole book with you, I will have to content myself to look at chapter 1. So hear now the word of the Lord from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It is not easy to follow a transcendent God, one whose ways and thoughts are so far above our own. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, as William Cooper wrote in his hymn, for us, God moves in a mysterious way. At times, God's movements perplex us. We don't understand what he's doing. At other times, his movement seems altogether hidden from us. We, we look around and we can't see evidence of his hand. And so this reality not only confuses us at times, at times it causes us great pain. I'm sure I'm not the only one whose experiences have at times left me bewildered and staggering when something happens and it feels like someone has come and hit you across the head with a two-by-four and you are left dazed sure I'm not the only one whose circumstances have left me grasping for answers as one gropes around in the dark to find a light switch. God's ways are not our ways, and so his movements can remain mysteriously veiled to us. But God has not left us completely blind to the nature and manner of his movements. In his mercy, he has given us his spirit, and he has given us his word. And his word, as the psalmist says, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. His word is like a corrective lens when our eyes grow weak. It is like a guide that 
brings us home when we wander away from the path. It is like an anchor for our hearts when we are tossed about in the storms of life. And it is like a soothing voice of encouragement when we begin to sink into the pit of misery. God's word is meant to sustain us when God's movement confuses us. And so Paul wrote to the Romans and said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Of course, that applies to all of scripture. Paul's thinking of the Old Testament. And one of the books in the Old Testament that has served me in this exact way to encourage me to endure has been the book of Ruth. Now this story is for people who struggle to see God's hand in their everyday lives. Who wonder if their everyday faithfulness makes any difference at all in the grand scheme of things. And who feel hopeless as sometimes circumstances appear to go from bad to worse. In this story, we see God bring profound suffering into the life of a woman named Naomi. He empties her of everything that gives her hope. And what I want us to see this morning as we spend a few moments in this chapter, I want us to see that one of the ways that God mysteriously moves in our lives is that he empties us in order to fill us. And along the way, I also want to offer three reminders that I pray will enable you to better endure perhaps the suffering you are facing now or prepare you for the day when suffering will inevitably come. So with this in mind, I want us to meditate on Ruth 1 for a few moments. Now, there's a town in Alaska called Barrow. Now, Barrow, Alaska enjoys the distinction as being the northernmost town in all of the U.S. It is located 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And it is so far north that this town, from mid-January, November to mid-January, is in complete darkness 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The citizens of this town can go up to 67 days a year without any sunlight. And you thought winter in Michigan was bad. But this is sometimes what the Christian life can look like. A life without the sun. Christians can experience a similar spiritual reality when we feel like life is one long winter of perpetual night, where night and day are indistinguishable. But unlike in Barrow, where they know around when this season will begin and they know roughly when it will end, these spiritual seasons of darkness for for the Christian are unpredictable. We don't know when they will come. We don't know when tragedy will strike. We don't know how long they will last. They may come suddenly and violently through 
tragedy or sickness or other loss. They may sneak up upon us gradually over time for no apparent reason at all. And because we cannot anticipate or explain them, we begin to wonder in the midst of them if we will ever see the sun again. Sometimes things are so bad that we convince ourselves there is no more sun. That's it for me. The light is gone. Well, the story in Ruth begins with such a season in the life of a woman named Naomi. This book is called Ruth. It's really about Naomi. In the first five verses, we see life for Naomi moving from bad to worse. In verse 1, we learn that this story takes place in the days of the judges. Now, if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that this time period is a low point in Israel's history. It is a time of social, political, and religious chaos, where Israel is repeatedly disobeying the Lord, breaking the covenant, finding themselves under God's judgment and under the oppression of enemies. And they continually increase in their depravity. And so the final verse in Judges poignantly summarizes this period. It says, in those days there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is the chaotic scenery for, for our story. And to add to this social, political, and religious chaos, we also see in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. This is probably another indication of God's judgment upon Israel. We know from places like Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, that famine was one of the curses for breaking the covenant. And it was meant to signal to God's people, you need to turn in repentance. So life is not good in Israel. So understandably, a man named Elimelech from the town of Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread, he takes his family, his, his wife, his two sons, and they leave Bethlehem because there is no bread in the house of bread. And they go to journey in Moab. Now, after they get to Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi, a widow in a foreign land with virtually no hope of finding another husband. However, there's still hope that Elimelech's line can continue and that Naomi can be provided for because she has two sons. And each of her sons has found a wife among the Moabites. So there's the hope that they can have offspring and Naomi will be provided for. But after 10 years, Naomi's sons and their wives still have no children. And to make matters worse, not one, but both of her sons also die. So Naomi is now a childless widow living in a foreign land. And it is hard to imagine a more hopeless circumstance in the ancient world. To be a childless widow, no children, no grandchildren, that was not just precarious, that was perilous. It was a death. 
So from every earthly point of view, Naomi's situation was hopeless. Elimelech's line is doomed to die out, and Naomi is doomed to a life of hardship and misery. Her life had to feel like a dark winter where it was night even in the daytime. Now here is where I want to pause and offer you the first reminder. And this is, this is obvious, but I find it extremely helpful. The first reminder is this. Christian, you will suffer. You will. And so you must prepare for the spiritual winters of darkness and famine. See, when we look through the world through the lens of Scripture, we see that God's movement often involves allowing His people to suffer, sometimes to suffer profoundly in such a way that it, it dominates your conscience. It, it just permeates every aspect of your life. Naomi is one example among many in Scripture that God ordains profound suffering in the life's, lives of his people. The gospel does not promise a pain-free life. In fact, it promises quite the opposite. To follow after Christ is to share in his sufferings. I think it usually means that to follow Christ, you will suffer more than if you had rejected him. Now, remembering this should help us prepare for the days of spiritual want when they will inevitably come. See, a lot of times when something happens and we, we experience the, the initial pain of, of suffering, of sorrow, of tragedy, it, it's just like a, a punch in the gut. Knocks the wind out of you. But there is, there is a difference... Between when you, you know a blow is coming and you, you can brace yourself and you, you tighten up. Then when you are punched unexpectedly and you are looking one way and the blow just comes. Now both will hurt. Both may even crumple you to the floor. But the unexpected blow will cause much more damage than the one you are preparing for. This is why... Peter tells the exiles of the dispersion, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. Don't be surprised, he says. See, the most effective military strike is one that is a surprise attack. And so we need to be constantly alert so we're not is much caught by surprise. Again, it is not that it will necessarily hurt less. It will be any, more, any less painful to endure. But you will be better equipped to withstand and survive it. If we do not have a biblical theology and understanding of suffering, we will be undone by it. For one of the temptations when suffering comes... One of the first things that the devil is going to go after you with is to cause you to doubt God's presence and love for you. That's one of the first ways you're going to be attacked. And so we need to have an understanding that pain and suffering are not mutually exclusive with God's presence and love. 
For when we lose confidence in God's presence and love, it makes the suffering that much more difficult to deal with. There is a big difference between being lost in a dark wood when you have a voice or a hand to help guide you through than if you are lost in a dark wood and you are all alone. And this is why so many of the New Testament epistles stress that God's presence and love are not discounted by the fact that we are facing hardship. Both can be true together. God ordains suffering for his people. Therefore, you must prepare. This doesn't mean you have to live life as a pessimist, always expecting the worst. That's how I survive being a Michigan State fan. That, that's not how we survive suffering in the Christian life. No, we prepare by daily filling the storehouses of our hearts with the gospel. Allowing the gospel to create the categories through which we can understand our life and experiences. I think of Joseph in Egypt. When Pharaoh has that dream, he says there's, there's going to be seven years of plenty and then there's going to be seven years of want. So what does Joseph do? In the seven years of plenty, he's, he stores up the grain so that when those seven years of want come, they can survive. They have the resources to endure the hardship. Likewise, you and I must be diligent to daily fill the storehouses of our hearts with the gospel. So we have no idea when there may be a day of winter and famine, or months, or years. We must be prepared. For when it comes, you will be tempted to doubt God's promises. Reading scripture will not always be as comforting to you. God will feel far and silent, and your physical and spiritual strength will be diminished. So if you have not been storing the truth of the gospel in your heart, you will starve and you will die. Suffering will come. You must prepare for the spiritual winters of darkness and famine. But even with this, even with your faithful gospel preparation, you will still face seasons that may feel hopeless to you. This is how it felt for Naomi. Like the land she had left in Israel, Naomi's life felt empty and dry. She is a childless widow, devoid of earthly hope, no food, no husband, and no offspring. Now, Naomi clearly understands her situation to be hopeless. On her way back to Bethlehem, she incessantly urges her two daughters-in-law to turn back. Go back to your families in Moab. In verse 8, she exhorts them, go, return each of you to her mother's house. And when they refuse, she tells them twice more in verses 11 and 12, turn back, my daughters. She tries to reason with them. To explain to them just how dire her situation is. And how dire their situation will be if they choose to stay with her. You see, she is too old to have another husband. 
And even if by some miracle she did find a husband, and by another miracle got pregnant that very night, and by yet another miracle had multiple sons in her womb, they would still be years away from marriageable age for Ruth and for Orpah. So she is essentially telling them, Ruth, Orpah, I love you. Because I love you, you need to know I am a sinking ship. And if you do not jump overboard right now and swim to shore, you are going down with me. God had emptied her. She could not see even the smallest thread of hope. And she was convinced that he would never fill her again. And the climax of chapter 1 comes in verses 20 and 21 with Naomi's cry. When she returns to Bethlehem, she tells the women, who, by the way, could barely recognize her. And I wonder if part of this was the fact that she had suffered so greatly that she was physically altered. And they wondered, is this Naomi? Is this the one who left years ago? When she comes to these women, she, she says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You see, the name Naomi means pleasant. Naomi believed that she would never know pleasantness again. And so she says, you call me Mara, which means bitter. She believed that her life would forever now be marked by bitterness. Because her present situation looked so empty, she had concluded that her future would be empty as well. And this brings us to the second reminder I want to offer you. You must remember that the pain of your suffering will blur the eyes of your heart. And so you cannot trust your own vision. The pain of suffering will blur the eyes of your heart and you cannot trust your own vision. I remember a time a couple years ago when my family and I were serving in a church in the Chicago area and things were not going very well. And I remember coming home one day after work and I just, I walked in the front door and I, I just started to weep. I just was crying and crying. And you know, as we sometimes do, when we are overwhelmed, when we're afraid, when we're despairing, we start frantically in our minds to just try and find one thought that we can hold on to that will give us hope. Something that we can cling to so that it doesn't look completely doomed. And so I started to try and do that. And I couldn't find anything. There was not one thought I could think of that gave me hope. And so I started to panic. And I started to cry even harder. And even with my eyes open, I could barely see two inches in front of me because the tears were just blurring everything in front of me. Now think of someone who can barely see two inches in front of them. Are they reliable to see what's 50 miles down the road? Of course not. 
And yet that is often what we try and do when we peer into our hypothetical futures in the midst of our sorrow and our pain. And I believe that the pain and sorrow of suffering blurs the eyes of our hearts as much as tears blur our physical eyes, if not more so. When our hearts are weeping, we are not in a fit condition to assess our present situation, let alone what the future is going to look like. So we need to understand that we are not in a right frame of mind when we are experiencing calamity. So we are not the best judges of our circumstances. See, the nature of suffering is such that when we are suffering, it is hard to see anything else other than the fact that we are suffering. Our suffering becomes like a microscope that, that magnifies our pain and our fears. They become more and more ominous and pervasive, and soon our suffering fills our entire field of vision. Now, as finite creatures, our perspective is always limited. When we are suffering, our, our perspective is not only limited, it is distorted. And so it is important to remember this as we sometimes begin to spiral toward despair. You need to remember that you cannot see everything. And what you can see is not always reliable, even if, it's, if some of it is true. We learn this when we look at Naomi. She was not wrong to attribute her calamity to God's hand. She says, the Almighty has done this. And she was right. You remember Job when he says, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the author immediately adds, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Naomi is right. God is the one who is emptying However, as the rest of the story makes clear, she was wrong in proclaiming her situation to be hopeless. As logical and as rational as her argument to Orpah and to Ruth sounded, it was not entirely accurate. There were other factors she had forgotten, such as the fact that she still has a relative in Bethlehem named Boaz. Furthermore, she was failing to see the present signals of hope shining like small shafts of moonlight in her season of night. The Lord was giving her glimpses of hope. She couldn't see it. Her perception did not equal reality. And that's one of the encouragements I, I find in the book of Ruth. It reminds me that, that perception is not always reality. Your perception of hopelessness does not automatically equal your situation is hopeless. The fact you cannot see God's positive activity in your life does not mean God is indeed failing to positively act. And it is often the case that God is giving you a glimpse that he is working, but you have become so preoccupied with your pain that you miss it. Now, the author of Ruth is a masterful storyteller. And throughout the story, he subtly inserts significant details that we might just gloss over if we're not careful. I believe this subtlety is intentional because it shows that at this time, Naomi did not see these details as significant. 
Her pain-distorted perspective blinded her to the shafts of moonlight whispering of better things to come. And the same can be true for you and me. In the midst of suffering, we often speak as if we are in utter darkness because that's, that's what it feels like. But the reality is, is that God has given us the moon to light our way by night even as he has given us the sun to light our way by day. And it is only in hindsight that we can see how God was already working to answer our prayers and working to fill us once again when we thought he was silent or we thought he was idle. And we see that the night was not quite as dark as we thought it was. And again, we see this with Naomi. As God empties Naomi, taking away her home, her family, her provision, he also gives her an important addition in her life. And this seemingly insignificant addition is a young Moabite woman named Ruth. Ruth is a shaft of moonlight in the darkness, and one whom God will use to fill her once again. But Naomi has no idea. Even when Ruth shockingly and contrary to all reason commits to abandon everything she has known and follow Naomi and Naomi's God, Naomi still fails to see any hope or significance in this. She returns to Bethlehem and she says, God has brought me back empty. And Ruth is probably standing right next to her. She can't see it. A second shaft of moonlight that we see is, is found in verse 6. You may wonder, why, why is Naomi coming back to Bethlehem in the first place? Well, it's because she's heard God has given food again. This is one of only two places in Ruth where God is said to direct, directly act. The second is in chapter 4 when God causes Ruth to conceive and bear a son. But this should have encouraged Naomi to find hope. For the first form of emptiness was already being filled. The first problem she faced was no food. God is now answering and addressing that emptiness. A third shaft of moonlight is seen in the words that close the first chapter. They come to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, which if I was able to preach through the rest of the book, you would see it's quite significant. God is bringing Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem at the, the exact right moment where they will be able to meet Boaz, where they will be able to have food provided for them. So the third reminder is that when you are in the midst of suffering, you need to actively look for the shafts of moonlight God is providing for you. And when you see them, just stop and give thanks. Let them encourage you that God will indeed fill you one day, whether in this life or in the next. The shafts of moonlight should encourage us that even at our lowest point, the feeling of hopelessness does not mean you are hopeless. The book of Ruth teaches us that God is still at work even in the worst of times. As John Piper says, when you think he is farthest from you or has even turned against you, as Naomi thought, says God has testified against me, the truth is that he is laying foundation stones of greater happiness in your life. Now, one word of clarification. 
as I've said, in the midst of the pain and suffering, it's very hard for the one who's suffering in that way to be able to see the shafts of moonlight, which is why it's so important that when we suffer, we suffer in fellowship, where other faithful brothers and sisters who can see clearer than we can, can point them out to us. We need to come alongside one another, because when you, when you feel in the darkness, it is it's really hard to see. And you need someone else to come alongside you and say, I know it's hard, but I, I can see hope. I can see shafts of moonlight. They're there. Trust me, even if you can't see them. We cannot endure our, on our own. God has not called us to endure on our own. So brothers and sisters, you will suffer. Suffering is an essential part of the Christian life. Christ's path to glory was through the cross. And if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. There can be no resurrection to new life without death. To fill you, God must first empty you. And so you must prepare by daily filling the storehouses of your heart with the truth of the gospel, you must remember that your vision will be blurred and distorted by your sorrow and pain, and you must look for the shafts of moonlight God is providing for you as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But too often our reaction to suffering is to become angry. Become angry with God. We cry out in our pain and sorrow, and it just seems like he's not answering us at all. And I've noticed for myself that part of this stems from the fact that I'm not always crying out for the, for the right thing. See, when I'm lost in darkness and blinded by pain, what I want is God to give me sight. Help me understand exactly why this is happening and how you are going to bring me out of this. I need to see this, God, if I'm to have any hope. But while I want sight. What I need is faith. God brought Naomi from pleasantness to bitterness, from fullness to emptiness. Contrary to what she could see, this was not God's movement to destroy her. It was God's movement to save her, as well as to save all mankind. God was emptying her for the purpose of filling her. And it was through these events that he would eventually provide not only her with an offspring who would be her redeemer, but an offspring who would lead to the way for our great redeemer, Jesus Christ. For this child that would eventually be born to Ruth and Boaz would be the grandfather of King David. And it is through the line of King David that our Messiah was delivered to us, Jesus Christ. But God did not tell Naomi any of this. He didn't explain what he was doing to her. And so she simply had to have faith. And what a wonderful example Ruth is of this. Ruth had no more idea than Naomi did of how things were going to work out. The Lord had not given her a direct word promising that she would find a husband and have a child. By earthly standards, Orpah's the smart one. Ruth is the fool. But Orpah's choice brings her out of God's story. Ruth's faith brings her right to the heart of it. You want sight, but you need faith. 
You want God to tell you how will it will all work out. How will I survive when I've lost my job? How will I go on after the death of my spouse? How will my marriage ever get any better? How will I live with this chronic pain in my body? How will I emerge out of this depression? How will I face my fears? How will I raise all of my support for a church plan in Kalamazoo? How will I make it through a pastoral transition in my church? You want God to give you all the answers, and yet the way the Lord speaks is what he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That's what you need to know. And that is what I can promise you. So I thank God that my hope does not depend on the strength of my faith, for I admit my faith is often very weak. No, it is not the strength of your faith that will save you, but the object of your faith. So you must set your faith on Christ. You must hold on to him even when you cannot see in the darkness. And as you cling to him by faith, think of the cross which looked like a journey to utter despair and hopelessness. And remember, God empties to fill. God had the Son empty himself to take the form of a servant and to be humble to the point of death on a cross. And that is what led to the great exaltation of our Lord and Savior. And that is the same path that will lead to your joy in heaven for eternity. And you will see that every moment of pain, every sorrow, every loss was preparing for you an eternal weight of glory but you won't always see it now. So brothers and sisters, have faith. And as Cooper writes, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Pray with me. Father, it is so hard to see sometimes what you are doing, why you are doing it. And Lord, we confess that our faith is weak. But we thank you that the object of our faith is not. That he is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. So I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes upon our crucified and risen Lord. And I pray that you would help us to help each other fix our eyes upon Christ. That as the storm of life is swirling around us, that we would not be distracted and begin to sink, but that we would look to our Lord and Savior and by His grace walk upon the water to Him. Help us, we pray, by Your Spirit, by Your Word, by the fellowship that You have given us here at this church. In Jesus' name.